Welcome back to the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm Victor, and joining me is William Gallagher. No superlative, just William Space Gallagher. But in that space, surely there's room to run out. Yay, give me a W. In that space, universes live and die. In that space... Or just a W, a W, a D, and a C. Yay! In that space, species are born, grow old, and are buried. In that space, universes come into existence. William Space Uh Gallagher. And about WWDC? I need an echo effect. Gallagher, 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 Gallagher. Yeah. Right. But WWDC, it's here. Aren't you excited by this? No. Oh, Okay. I genuinely am. I mean, most of the time, I'm, I'm, you know, when you work in this thing, you go to lots of events, you follow so many announcements and things, and you get kind of inured to it. But uh, this one, I really look forward to every time. I know. I know that you do. And I think it's cool. I do. There are frequently good talks that, that come out of this thing. These, This is where developers learn about what they'll be able to do with the next OS release. And they start getting their hands on sample code for these kinds of things. And they start getting to, to be able to ask engineers questions about how things are going to work so that when they get their hands on it, they'll be able to work with it nicely. It's it's really a great event. I think the thing that I don't like about this event is that the keynote for this event gets used for talking about hardware. And We've, we've seen that in the past, but I, I think it's better when this event gets used to talk about the upcoming software capabilities, okay. which happens a little bit less. Now, obviously, it's it's part marketing, it's part PR, it's all of this kind of thing. What, what do we want to talk about that's going to put another big splash about Apple out there? Well, they just released new hardware. They released the MacBook Pros not too long ago. They released um, an iPod Touch, which was kind of awesome. Clearly, I didn't want to talk about the iPod Touch at WWDC. So, what could they announce? What do you think? I think you're building to saying that this is like the March event where they got some hardware stuff out of the way so they could concentrate on services, and this time the concentrate on software. Is that what you're thinking? Well, that would be ideal, but I think, what if at WWDC they announced a new Mac Pro? What more developer of a machine could you want besides, like, an iMac Pro or a MacBook Pro that they already announced last week or so? What if this is the time of the Mac Pro? What do you think? No. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Are you excited about WDWC? No. Are they going to announce a new Mac Pro? No. Okay, we did swap <laughs> sides in that conversation a bit. I, you're doing great over there, Victor. <laughs> WWDC is a software event, but you're right, they obviously launched yes. hardware there, but you can well understand that they have managed to get an amazing amount of attention for every keynote. Of course, they're going to put in things there, they're going to do well for them, and that often, always, maybe somewhere in between those two, means hardware. Uh However, I think Apple is extraordinarily precise in what it chooses to exploit when. They would never put two new products out at the same time. They would always emphasize one. I, they, they know how to get the maximum and not to dilute anything. They have no need that I can see to announce the Mac Pro now because we all know it's coming. We all suspect it'll be very late this year. But 
they can make an event all by itself when it comes and they don't have to make an event out of it anyway. Uh, so I don't think they'll use the slot for something they don't have to. There was a report that they had seriously considered um, whether or not to reveal the Mac Pro at whatever stage it's got to now. And I don't know what the outcome of that is. Maybe they've gone the route for yes. But it, I don't think it's like the tentpole feature of this WWDC event. And I'm fine with that. Uh, but I think you're keener than I am. I, I want to see the machine in existence. Yes. I do. And they've said the word modular. Yes. And I'm curious to see what that means. Yeah, me too. And other than that, I'm not particularly fussed. It could be end of year, I won't mind, because I'm not exactly in the market for one, and I haven't been thirsty for one. But, boy, would I like to see it. So if they just emailed you a photograph... You personally, you have individually, that'd, that'd do the job. I could neither confirm nor deny. Yes, you could, but you're not going to. Okay. Right. I'm interested to know, I mean, there's so much attention on this forthcoming. There's so much attention on this Mac Pro that even though Apple were really clear that it wasn't coming out when they, they mentioned it in, what, 2017, that they were very, yeah. very clear. It was not coming out in 2018 either. And still a year later, they basically had to say, look, people, we said it's not coming out this year. Uh, people kind of got very overexcited about it. And I, and I understand why. And I'm interested as well. But I suspect that uh, you're not in the market for it. Uh, I'm not. I mean, I, with me, it's, yeah, financially, whatever it is, there's no way I can go from having just bought a Mac Mini to buying a Mac Pro, but also what it's likely to offer us, the power, I don't need. Uh, I imagine the number of sales it's going to have, it'll be comparatively small next to an iMac or a Mac Mini or something. And yet it's this I, big thing coming. Ace. I am concerned that by taking so long, they have seeded ground. That that this was a machine that people were hungry for, and people either kept their old machines and upgraded them as much as they possibly could, or pursued things like Hackintosh, or gave up entirely and either run Linux or Windows for certain purposes like that. And if those alternatives are better for them, then... Well, it's not that they are better for them. Obviously, the first position would have been desirable just to get a new Mac Pro, but when the, the dearth of support has meant look elsewhere, it, it's, it's a bad thing. It's always better to stick with the machines you know and like. Uh, easier to get a newer, better version of the one that you are very happy with. Um, but other than that, uh, unhappy for Apple, not that. As long as people can get tools that they need to do what they need, then ultimately, whether it's Apple or Windows, does it matter? Well... That's an interesting position for the Apple Insider podcast to take, William. Well, I was throwing um, it out there because <laughs> I mean, I think I think that that we need to pay attention to pro users. That where you know, it's it's an interesting thing historically. It's been the pro user that kept Apple and Macintosh alive for so long that. It's the home user is the reason that we don't all use OS2 and where, where people use Windows. Um, you know, originally 
OS2 was the business operating system on the PC side of things, and Windows ran application, you know, OS2 ran Windows PC applications, and people ended up making Windows the dominant operating system for PCs instead of OS2 because it was what they used at home. So there's this perspective from that sense that home use matters more, but I, I think it's very important to not forget pro users. And when you do, it means you lose things like Aperture, which went away. It means you, you lose people using Final Cut to using Premiere, and once you start using Premiere, you can use Premiere on Windows. It means, and, and that once you use people who are using Premiere on Windows, you, you lose the sales of Macs as well. It's, it's a difficult thing. You don't want to create a situation that allows your customer to leave so easily. And Apple does. I thought OS2 failed because Windows was cheap, but okay. No, OS2 was was not exorbitantly expensive comparatively. It was, OS2 was designed for business use, and the the plan, the marketing strategy was OS2 at work, Windows at home, and run Windows apps on OS2 at work, and that failed as a strategy. Okay. Were the machines expensive then? The- no. Okay. So OS2 blew it. OS2 was very well made, very robust, where Windows wasn't, but it didn't succeed. You know, there, there are a lot of things that don't succeed, right? BOS was fantastic, but did not succeed. Yes. I think there's an issue of pro users, consumer users, this prosumer word that goes in between. There are things I do that are uh, professional users. I mean, app development. I don't do very much of it, but when I do it, it's it's a pro use. Uh, I have done lots of video editing uh, using Final Cut Pro. Does that make me a pro user? Yes, for about an hour and things. Um, there's just a blurrier line, uh, I think. I, no question, there are people who need the absolute maximum that Apple or Windows or anybody can give them, and a lot of the time they're getting them. So, uh, yes, I see your point, but I'm less concerned in the long term for you i i mean you, you were saying you were mocking me for saying this as an apple insider thing and i was i was starting to say that i threw this out to you really because um i was sounding like an argument i've often heard which is that it's the specs that matter that it is how fast or how many cores you've got and all this stuff for it and i accept that these things are important i don't follow the specs on things i'm only concerned with the end result and what you use it for but i do think it is fundamentally important which operating system you're using uh because to me the mac helps me do what i want and windows is forever getting in the way so windows is a massive production drain for me and i know for other people it's the other way around one suits different people and when you found the one that works for you it's really hard to swap to the other and i think that will keep apple stuff going while they wait to get the mac pro right rather than get another one wrong welcome to this episode of the apple insider podcast i'm victor and joining me for uh, for a very special segment is Russ Shanahan. Hi, Russ. Good morning, Russ. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Why? What? What is it that you do? Well, for many years, I was a salaried full time uh, programmer. I was doing Android, C plus plus, and stuff like that. But when the App Store came out, I was really excited because I always dreamed of having a computer that I could program for that was right there in my pocket. 
So I started working on an app called Happy Scale about eight years ago. And it is a weight loss tracker that averages weights out so that you can make predictions about how things are going and stop worrying about fluctuations. And for many years, it was just a nights and weekends project that gave me satisfaction. But along the way, it caught enough traction for it to become my full-time job. Wow, that's very cool. Congratulations. Thank you. I have been interested in the what I call quantified self or or this sort of fitness tracking thing for ages, starting back, I want to say, about 2009, 2010. And I got my first scales, connected scales, I think in, I want to say, 2013. Mm-hmm. And... I've been using them with the app that that came with them, which is, uh, in my case, Withings HealthMate. And I had occasionally paired them with with things like Lose It. What What is the, the real advantage to using something like Happy Place? So when you use Happy Scale, it will no, take... Happy Scale. <laughs> so sorry. Happy That's scale. okay. That's okay. Uh, when, you, when you use uh, Happy Scale, it, I actually have a Withings Scale myself, and I use their HealthMate app. And it will read the weights from Apple Health. It will import them into Happy Scale. And then it has um, several algorithms that it can apply to those numbers so that it can make predictions about how things are going if you smoothed out all the weights. Because, like, for example, I'm losing weight right now. I'm using this app and I've lost about 74 pounds to date, I think. Wow. And, yeah. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm also a user. It's, it's, it's the inspiration for the app. I am in awe. <laughs> that's, that's significant. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, so what it, what it does is it will, take, it will take the weights that you weigh in daily and it will average them out so that you can, I, like, I get, I get so um, discouraged when my scale won't budge and I'm finding as I lose the weight that I could, I could, my weight could drop three pounds lower than I've ever seen on any given day. And then it might be 10 days that I go before seeing a new low number. And that's always been something that's been frustrating for me. And so what happy scale does is it, instead of showing you like a three pound loss on the day when the scale whooshes down, it will just kind of take a little bit of that and say, okay, th- this is a, your progress today, but let's save some of that progress for the future so that you can, you can see a downward trending line consistently and it kind of averages out all the fluctuations that your body does naturally. Okay. When I open the HealthMate app, I'm just going to look at it really quickly. I get the list of the different, uh, the different weights by day and they sort of try and smooth this out a little bit too. They, they show a, a month or a quarter or a year with a sort of smoothing line through all of the, the uh, bouncing around data. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. So I can sort of see a general trend. And the truth is I almost never look at that view. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the, the real truth is that I almost never actually open the app and it sort of nudges me and reminds me, hey, you haven't weighed in in a few days or you haven't, it's been three weeks since your last weigh in. Are you ready to skip on the scale this morning? And my answer is no, no, I am not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It's funny when apps give you those nudges like that. I've, I've, I've restrained myself from adding those because 
they kind of annoy me too. Well, it's not that I'm annoyed by it. It's it's that I I know that the last time that I weighed in, that I am now 30 pounds higher than my goal. Yep. And previously I was 20 pounds higher than my goal. And so it's so disillusioning. It's crushing. I mean, it right. just weighs on you. It's, it's total. It's, it's. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think that um, one of the things that I hear from users is that this app changes their relationship with the scale where they, they went from this attitude of like, I don't even want to see what the number is to shifting to this is just a data point, but this this doesn't have the same meaning or significance or detriment that it had before. It's just a data point that I'm going to feed into the algorithm. I'm going to look at my trend line. It's still going down or it's still going up, but it's not going up as badly as I thought it would be. And everything's going to be okay. Because really, when you're trying to lose weight, the number one thing is to just find a way to keep going. And I... And the the best feedback I hear from users is when they tell me that it's changed the way that they think about the numbers and and that they're not scared of it anymore and it's actually helping them continue on because for whatever hard goal you want to achieve in life, the the number one thing that you can do, in my opinion, is to just persist and keep going. I think there's room for humor in this kind of thing. You know, mm-hmm. it's one of the, the apps that we talked about in the past on this show has been uh, Carrot Weather, mm-hmm. where Carrot Weather takes the approach of injecting humor into the weather. Mm-hmm. And I can't think of a single health application that actually does that. Right. Yeah. I, and I think about it because I was at the doctor's the other day and they asked me to step on the scale and they said, so what's it say? And the answer was more, more than I wish that it did. And and so we sort of used this sort of self-deprecating humor to talk about things like weight or fitness. I wonder why there isn't an app that actually takes advantage of something like that. It's a great question. Uh, and I, I actually, I love the carrot weather app myself too. The, the developer is brilliant. And, um, but I, I, I think that the concern that I have with adding humor to it is that I don't really know how the user is experiencing that. Uh, it's just such a personal thing to, um, to, to struggle with weight loss. I, I know personally, like there, there are yeah. people that, um, it, that it can, it can, it can really be bad for their life. And I, 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 I've always stayed away from using humor because I don't want to make a joke when somebody else, when it would hurt somebody's feelings. My, my ultimate goal is to try to make a tool that will help people feel better or encouraged and I've always thought that if I added humor, maybe some people would love that. But if 10% of people would, if it would be a turnoff for them, then I I would actually prefer to uh, stay away from it. Just so that I can have this be a useful tool that's kind of agnostic that can be used by everyone. And I know that with Carrot Weather, for example, one of the things that he's done in recent years is add added settings to the app where you could just completely turn off the personality. And I, I think that that was a great solution because again, that can make it very agnostic and it could be something that everyone can use. And I, I think that if I ever went down the path of adding more personality to the app, I definitely want to make it something that the user could control and turn on and off. 
I, I want to say that I, th- I thank you for being that considerate. You know, there, I think there are app developers out there who would, who would take the chance and say, if they're just going to offend 10% of their audience, that they're okay with that in, in favor of making something that they thought was better for the, the remaining 90%. Being so considerate, being so caring, especially around something as personal as weight is, uh, well, I, I think it's something that, that you should be really proud of. And, oh. and thank you. Well, thanks. You know, it's, um, it's, it. I, th- I think the reason behind it is that this this tool is a, is one of a kind. Um, there there is a smoothing algorithm in Withings Health Me, and it's great to see that. I'd love to see more apps adopt this. There there are other apps that are doing it now, but uh, my app has more of a spin on it, where there are different algorithms that you can choose. They're more sophisticated, and it can also make predictions into the future about how things are going to go. And I know that as a utility, it's positioned very uniquely. And because of that, I want to make it accessible to as many people as possible. Let me ask you a little bit about the the business side of things. You started mm-hmm. this as a hobby. You grew it to the point that it could become your full-time job. Mm-hmm. How has that been going? How, how has that, that, been, that, that journey been progressing? It's really cool. Um, it's something that I dreamed about my whole life. My dad was a machinist and he was self-employed and he had his own machine shop down the street from where I lived. And I used to love riding my bike down there to visit him at his machine shop. And I thought it was so cool that he was in control of his own destiny and everything. And it was something I always wanted for myself. And um, I ever, and I, it's been really nice to be able to have so much control over the direction of the product and the personality of the product and to, to say, say where everything is going. I've really enjoyed having this opportunity. But there was something that happened the other day. I I noticed you on Twitter talking about uh, troubles with the app store. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, it was two Saturdays ago now. It was about 13 days ago. I was getting breakfast for my son and I got an alert and the alert was from app figures, which monitors downloads for indie iOS developers. And my downloads had plummeted to a number that I hadn't seen in years. And it was, I had no idea why it might've happened. So I didn't really have time to look in, into it then, but later that night I looked into it and I did a lot of research and I found I, I found out that I think that it's happening because I got delisted for the term the search term weight loss tracker and weight tracker and those were two of the most important search terms for users that were discovering my app and because of that my downloads went down forty four percent. Wow. That is, that is drastic. Um, why do you think that happened? Why, why do you think that change was made? And I know it's speculation, but I'm just asking to, to sort of think about why this could happen. Well, I actually, I tweeted about it yesterday and I was very fortunate because this, this story got picked up and um, a lot of people shared it. And when I woke up this morning, I actually heard from other people who have experienced this exact same issue. 
and I feel confident at this point that I know why it might be happening. Uh, Apple has a subtitle field for all apps where you can give a, uh, a description of what your app does it, as, as one of the lines in the app store. And mine is predictive weight loss tracker. And they give you 30 characters for that field. And I use exactly 30 characters. And what I heard from people was that there was some kind of a bug in Apple's system where on the exact same day that I was affected, there were many other developers who were affected. And if you used exactly 30 characters, every single character, it would kind of ignore the very last word. It seems to be like cutting off the last letter. And so I feel, I feel very encouraged in this moment after hearing back from these people that uh, to work around this, all I'm going to have to do is change the subtitle field to weight loss tracker. And I'm, I'm knocking on wood right now. Hopefully that's going to get everything <laughs> back to where it should be. Yeah, because you know, dropping by by more than half of your sales is a big deal. It's it seems crazy that 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 would be the change. Yeah, it was it was quite a wake up call uh, to see it drop like that, and it can be it can be a blessing uh, to have moments like that too, in spite of all the uncertainty, because it can really. I, I know for me, there there are certain things I take for granted with the app, and. I think I think whenever you're doing anything, there are just some things you have to take for granted so that you can focus on the most important thing. But this is a great opportunity for me to take a step back and say, like, okay, what are all the things that I was taking for granted that put me in this vulnerable position where such an arbitrary change could throw everything out of whack for me? And what can I do about it? Definitely. The, the difficulty is when you have a, a single retail outlet, you've placed all of your eggs in their basket, basically. And if if they have whims that change, or, or even it's not even whims, it's an error that changes things, you you have no control. It, 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 yeah, it puts you in this huge position of being in jeopardy. And for for you know physical goods businesses it, it definitely puts them out of business when a change like that happens yeah in the software business you you may have a chance to recover you may have a chance to fix the problem and keep being listed uh and it all comes down to that this whole thing is sometimes held together with with shoestrings and sealing wax yeah. right bits of bits of glue and paste kind of thing You know, I was reading another thread on Twitter the other day where it was uh, someone saying never use the second address field because that's the first thing that people drop when hmm. they when they do shops and things like that. And you, you see it in people whose addresses lose the apartment that they're listed in kind of thing because that second field gets dropped right away. It's never oh. kept up. Wow. And, uh, you know, all of this stuff is is just barely held together and barely working, even when it comes to the app store. Yeah. We're all rushing into the future so quickly. It's, it's easy to build systems that are brittle and not so robust. And that's just as true for me as any, as the larger systems that I depend on. You know, the, uh, the, the only thing that I saw as people giving advice was besides fixing the bug that you'd found was, um, Contact Phil Schiller, <laughs> which, I mean, in the old days, you could email S. Jobs at Apple and get someone from his team to respond. And and in the really old days, you'd get him to respond. 
And we've seen that happen a little bit with Tim Cook, but, but emailing Phil is not really, uh, you know, sort of a hit or marry. It's not really <laughs> a respected right. support path, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad to hear you're confident that this is going to be resolved. Have, have you seen it? Uh, have you seen the results come back yet? I actually have a build. You have to submit a new build to Apple and push out a new build to everyone in order to make a change like this. And so I have a, uh, I have a build that's on deck waiting to be released. And in just a, a little bit later today, I'm going to just verify that there aren't any mistakes in the build and push it out. And I'm very eager to see what happens. Does it seem strange that you have to create a whole new build to change metadata like the subtitle for your application? I wish it weren't that way, but I understand why they did it. In the early days of the App Store, uh, they gave you a lot more control to change your screenshots and your title and all, all of the fields without submitting a new build. And we were seeing that some developers were doing bait and, bait and switches where they might change their screenshots after the app was approved and released to the app store. Uh, so they looked like it did one thing, but then when users saw it, it, it presented itself differently. And so I can understand why they do that because they, they, they take everything that you want to present to users and they review it all at once and they make sure that you're being forthcoming. And so this is just a, this is just one of the ways that they've had to work around the fact that some people try to rip people off on the App Store. All right. Well, I want to thank you for joining us. I have a couple of questions about the app. Um, mm-hmm. What what does the Deluxe Edition in-app purchase do in the app? It unlocks all of the features. Uh, there's, a, um, there's an integration with Apple Health so that you can automatically import and export all of your entries that it unlocks. There are extra predictive features so that you can see what you'll weigh by your upcoming high school reunion, for example. Um, and there, there are some reports that it unlocks. So it, it will give you the full experience of the app if you unlock it. That's what I need to get then. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I want to thank you for this, and I'm just going to read from your I, your your reviews on the App Store a little bit because they really they they looked so great. You know, you mentioned that you've lost over 70 pounds using the app. There was a review that the first review that I saw says something like, "I lost 40 pounds." Yeah, right away, and then the next review after that it says that that. Uh, Right. So over the past few years through stress eating, I'd put on about 40 pounds. Two years of dieting only put on more weight. I set my goal target at 40 pounds with a lofty goal of three pounds a week. And I am down now down 40 pounds with only a few more pounds to go. Hmm. That is that has got to be so rewarding to hear. Oh my God. It's I I had one one of the things that um drove me in this direction was that I felt frustration because the day jobs that I was working on, they weren't necessarily tangibly making the world a better place. Uh, they, they were they were like B2B software things that were helping businesses thrive. But I really was hoping that someday I'd be able to make something 
where I could, I could see that like somebody's life was getting better in a tangible way because of what I made. And this feels like the culmination of so many years of effort. And it, it really makes my day to wake up in the morning and see an email or a review from a user that says that it's helping them. It's, it's, it's an incredible motivation to keep working in the app too. Fantastic. Well, Russ, thank you so much. Where should people go to check out Happy Scale? You can go to happyscale.com. Uh, if you can search for Happy Scale on the App Store, and uh, it'll take you right there. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be on the show. Yeah. How do you feel about the 2019 iPod Touch? I was pleased to see that it was out. It brought back some memories. I can't remember from exactly when I last signed up, presumably before 2007 and, and the launch of the iPhone, but I was glad that it was there. Yeah. The iPod Touch, you know, there were a bunch of people asking why on earth you'd bother releasing one. But it makes sense. If you aren't seeing the market for one, you're not really paying attention because, first of all, you can give your kid an iPod Touch or you can give them an iPad. And maybe it makes more sense for an iPad, but the Touch is also a great device. You know, if you want to have portable TV watching, you don't necessarily want to carry around an iPad everywhere. Yeah. It's a good form factor. You want portable gaming. You want things like that. You want to be able to test as an app developer and don't necessarily buy a whole spare phone, right? Yeah, good point. I hadn't thought of that one. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, suppose you actually i was talking with a fellow named jason leopold about this jason leopold is a senior editor for buzzfeed news mm -hmm. and he was saying that the the fastest way to get secure communications going was to use an ipod touch with google voice on it Okay, that makes sense. And uses that. it a phone and route your communications through their VoIP because their VoIP was more secure than using the phone system. Is it true that the sole difference between an iPod Touch and an iPhone is that there isn't a phone in the iPod Touch? Um, mixed, right? The, the iPod Touch doesn't have the true depth sensor on the front, so there's no face ID going on. Oh, I didn't on. think of that. Right, of course. Right. Okay. The, the iPod Touch doesn't have the uh, the same processor necessarily. I mean, the updated one is is using the A10 Fusion, right? But it's not using an A11 or an A12 or whatever. So, Okay. Because it seems to me it's, that of all the features of my iPhone that I'd miss, the phone is pretty low down the list. In fact, uh, I'm at the stage where uh, my mobile phone contract uh, gives me more free minutes per month than there are minutes in the month uh, because I'm not using any and it's cheaper for them to say it knowing I won't use any. Um, yeah. You could do without it. I hadn't considered uh, voice over internet a protocol. Um, I've heard mixed things about Google's phone over the years. I can't remember if it's uh, not available in the UK. That's why I didn't try it. It probably wasn't when I first heard about this. But I knew people who were fans who then just slowly kind of dribbled off to alternatives, and I don't know why. Uh, is that Well, Google has not paid a whole lot of attention to it in recent years, but it's there and it still works. It's probably not going to go away. Right. Among the many services that Google can cancel, yeah. it's probably not one of the first. Um, it, 
works reasonably well as a voiceover internet thing. The calling rates are very cheap, so it's it makes a ton of sense in terms of doing international calling through it. Okay. It's uh, it, it's good for a lot of things there. I, I do like their they they were among the first to do the voicemail transcription to email. Oh right. You know where where yeah. Apple now has voicemail transcription in the voicemail section of the phone app. Google Voice was doing it for years. Now, does that mean that Google trains on your voice calls to be able to understand how to do that? Yes, yes, it does. But it's a really handy app for for making calls and having them being relatively secure. And doing that on iPod Touch is a good way of doing it. Cool. So yay for the iPod Touch. Why did it take them four years to bring out a new one? Because people buy phones and iPads. Right. If it were a runaway seller, they would keep doing it. It sells enough, but but essentially, this is not the newest, fastest phone as a touch. It is an iPhone seven without a phone. Uh, okay. And without Touch ID. Right. Still sounds pretty good to me. I mean, I'm unlikely to go buy one as I have an iPhone, but I, I absolutely. You said about um, missing the market for it that people don't understand. I get that completely. Yes, a fine thing, a fine addition to the Apple lineup. Right. And since we're on the the topic of security just a little bit, Mm -hmm. uh, the British spy agency, GCHQ. I'm not sure that's how they build themselves, a British spy agency. Um, They probably have some... No, no, no. They're, 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 I mean, intelligence services or global communications headquarters, right? That's what that's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, or I'm sorry, government communications headquarters. Global is a little ambitious for them, I suppose. Oops, but, did I reveal uh, a secret? As a British national, <laughs> it's out there. No. Okay. You and your global ambitions. is British colonialism coming back? Is that what you're telling us? Uh, a lot of people are telling us that it is, but they're the ones who want us to leave the EU. So, you know, we don't listen to them. Oh, well, I wish that were true, but okay. Yes. I Considering that 50% or more voted for this nonsense you're undergoing right now, I don't know that you do. Okay, that's a very generous thing saying (laughs) or more. But anyway, what have we done now? I know this one, but what do you think we've done now? There's proposal from your government to require the right to eavesdrop on encrypted messages. Okay, would you like the official British position, the position of the British person in the street? Yeah, go ahead. It is astonishment that the UK government is doing anything about anything that isn't to do with Brexit. Because genuinely so much legislation has ceased for three years because of all this. So somewhere along the line, this has been coming out. So we're a bit surprised, to be honest. But, you know, other than that... Where do you stand? Right. Can you explain what they're well, doing? First of all, I'm going to read a quote, and then I'm going to explain why this is terrible and nonsense. Mm-hmm. And yes, that's my position. Okay. So GCHQ's Ian Levy and Crispin Robinson proposed this system in November of 2018, and they laid out principles for how service providers could implement it. They said it's relatively easy for a service provider to silently add a law enforcement participant to a group chat or call. They wrote, you end up with everything still being end-to-end encrypted, but there's an extra end on this particular communication. And they insist, they insist this is not the same as granting backdoor access to communications. They're insisting that this sort of solution is no more intrusive than virtual crocodile clips that can be used to tap traditional voice intercept solutions. 
and that it isn't an expansion of government power. I do think the crocodile clips line is was well chosen. Uh, <clears throat> explains what they're doing. Very colourful description. Covers up the, uh, the that next part about not giving the government uh, too much power because, of course, it completely gives every government power. And I, I'm careful to say every government there because once the UK, if the UK got this through, all governments would get this Everyone through. would come asking for it, yes. yeah. Yes. So... As you say, this this would introduce significant additional security threats, and it it poses threats to user security because users no longer be able to trust that they know who's on the other end of the communications, yeah. which poses threats to human rights, privacy, free expression, end-to-end encryption. Just adding another endpoint in there is a cute turn of phrase, and I I think it violates the concept here. Completely. I mean, I've read this is about an open letter that has been written, uh, signed by Apple, Google, WhatsApp, Microsoft. Uh, it's a total of forty-seven people, including individual security experts, and they are all they wrote. They wrote nine-page PDF open letter sent to GCHQ. It's about three three thousand words long, a very detailed rebuttal of everything that's said, and it's not the most thrilling read, but uh, it's very serious about how this is. Well, dreadful in every conceivable way yeah and then the impact here is that it would force a change in the encryption schemes used yes so this government law would force the companies to change how they are implementing software which is a violation if software is speech if software is the expression of an idea and it is then the government forcing a company to change how they express that idea is a violation of the principle of code as speech Hmm. It would also that's mean me extending it a little bit. IOS, Apple but, would but, have to stop iOS telling you uh, when someone's joined your chat. It would have to break. Right, it would system. intentionally mislead users yes. by suppressing the notifications that appear when a new person joins a chat. And there's no way to prevent other governments from relying on this newly built scheme, which is a real concern when you have oppressive regimes in the world or any country with a poor record on protecting human rights. The open letter asks that GCHQ abandon this idea, and GCHQ responded, We welcome this response to our request for thoughts on this ex- on exceptional access to data. For example, to stop terrorists, Ian Levy said. The hypothetical proposal was always intended as a starting point for discussion. No, it wasn't. <laughs> no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. They intended for this proposal to be rammed through without modification and, and ideally without a whole lot of comment. Well, I don't think they were naive enough to we, see that would happen. We will continue to engage with interested parties, he said, and look forward to having an open discussion to reach the best possible solution. We will continue to engage with interested parties. We will continue to ignore interested parties. And we will look forward to having no discussion at all. Okay. Is what he really means, right? Uh, I shouldn't be amused by this, but I was the way um, the, the response chewing that line about exceptional access to data, for example, to stop terrorists, that was uh, definitely one of their "we're the good guys" kind of parts of this. For so yeah. there, there are three parts to hysteria, right? There's but terrorists. That's one part to hysteria. We're, we're going to do something completely outrageous, and we're going to do it because stop terrorists, yeah. or we're going to do something completely outrageous, but won't somebody think of the children? <laughs> yes. Right? 
right? Or the third, the third rail to all of this, which is the we're going to do something completely outrageous because someone out there is a child molester, right? Those are the three reasons that people use to justify bizarre, bad legislation. Yes. Yep. Just running through the list Would of horrible agree? things there. Yes, that that's certainly the top three. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's it is. I think there is also when, when seriously you, an aspect that they have drawn out the other side. And by making GCHQ be anti-terrorist, they are suggesting, just letting us be suggested, that everybody else in this argument is pro-terrorism. And that is a way that governments get what they want for it. So I don't believe that they were unaware that this would happen. I don't believe they thought they could get it straight through. But I do believe they think they will get it through. I'm back. Thank you. Can I trivialise this entire thing for just a moment? Because we got a bit serious there, talking about nasty in the world. You may... Uh, only if you want to be labelled pro-terrorist, William. Well, you can't control what people call you. Um, I love the fact that this is being referred to, this whole GCXQ plan, as a, a ghost protocol. Um, the idea of ghost being that there is this third person reading all of your messages. Uh, but of course... Right, if, right. The The... The person who's joined in and listening in as an as an additional endpoint in the end encryption, but is not notified, yeah. is a ghost, right? But if you now Google to see whether Ghost Protocol is some sort of intelligence agency firm, you get a screen full of listings about the Mission Impossible film of that name, and for some reason that pleases me. Yeah, it's a good film. So it was a fantastic film, but ah, uh, frustrating. I I am the. Governments continue to ask to break end-to-end encryption, and they do so to their detriment, because it makes everyone less safe. Yes. And that is, that is my position, and I stand by Which it. you would think is fundamentally the opposite of what a government should do for its people, but we live in strange times. We do live in strange times. Speaking of strange times, so in the U.S., we have four cell phone carriers. We have AT&T, we have Verizon, we have Sprint and T-Mobile. Mm -hmm. Sprint and T-Mobile asked permission of the U.S. Justice Department that they, they want to go ahead and merge. They want to become one. Yes. Right. And, and that would be fine. That would be fine, although there was some resistance given antitrust concerns. So, one of the proposals from the Department of Justice, in order to, to sign off on it, was that, fine, fine, T-Mobile Sprint, you can merge, but you have to create a new carrier so that there will be a fourth carrier to compete with you. Hey, Sorry, that was an intelligent comment there. Um, get together, but then split off a bit. Yeah. Okay. They would want them to create a spin-off carrier that would run on the combined Sprint and T-Mobile network. But be presumably autonomous or uh, it's not competition. Right. Okay. I've, to, I've got a to, name to make this further it. confusing for you, can I make this even more confusing for you? I doubt it, but I think you're going to try, Yes. All right. So they've already agreed to several concessions. One of them was selling off Sprint's Boost Mobile brand, which was a brand that Sprint owned as a carrier 
so people would be a Boost Mobile subscriber as opposed to a Sprint subscriber. So that is, they already had this kind of thing, basically, and agreed to sell it off, and they're being asked to create another one. But to whom have they sold off this? No, well, they, they agreed to sell it off. They have not sold it off yet. Oh, right. So isn't this just... But they conceded that they would. They, they committed to a three-year 5G expansion so that 5G would be there. And they, avoided, they agreed to avoid price hikes while that network's under construction. Um, yeah, well, you succeeded in the more confusing. I didn't think that was possible. So, yeah. Well, let me make it more confusing. The new entity, the new Sprint T-Mobile entity, would still control Metro Mobile and Virgin Mobile USA. Right. I should say, from the UK perspective, I've obviously heard of Sprint and Verizon and T-Mobile. We have T-Mobile, we have Virgin, or we have had at different times. Uh, some of these other ones are getting more and more obscure. Are you saying that Sprint, you call it uh, Boost, Sprint Boost something? Yeah, so Sprint owns Boost Mobile, Okay. Sprint controls Metro and Virgin Mobile. And they have agreed that they will sell off the Boost one, and separately keep control of the others but also separately spin off a new one but that would make five not three don't ask this is this is weird and it's it's unusual that they would be asked to do this but the fcc and the doj both have to sign off on it before the july 29th deadline that sprint and t-mobile have self-imposed okay why would they self-impose the deadline? Because otherwise things just go on forever. Because otherwise it'll drag out. And, and so the answer is, we're going to merge. We want to get permission to merge, but we have to lock in before July 29th. If we don't, the deal's off. And if the deal's off, then T-Mobile's been for sale for years, right? T-Mobile has, has been up for sale for ages. And Sprint has been underperforming for years. And so it makes sense for the two of them to merge. And T-Mobile gets a in, in huge influx of cash for it. In, in a way, and it's sort of reverse takeover sprint in the best possible world. Okay. You, you want John Ledger and Mike Sievert in the charge of this combined entity. Right. Because they are the ones that are shaking up the carrier landscape in the U.S. Well, I don't know who those people are. I don't know which one runs which, but I get the idea for it. Which is the bigger then, Sprint or, or T-Mobile in the U.S.? Uh, sprint has been bigger. Okay. Sprint's number three in the U.S., traditionally. Okay. What possible advantages there to this whole uh, what's the advantage to the consumer then let's assume the fcc and the doj are looking out for us or at least us well, in so the states. t-mobile has been t-mobile has been very consumer forward t-mobile has been very consumer forward on billing prices on um, bundling of services on things like that sprint has also been pretty consumer forward in terms of pioneering the idea that your device is consistently exchanged for the upgraded device as soon as the upgraded device is available kind of thing Upgrade plans. Uh, Everyone else has sort of tried to follow suit, but Sprint has led the way on that. And people, you know, people poo-poo Sprint's service coverage area, but tons of people use Sprint because they're a low-cost network. Um, T-Mobile has kept prices down and also has bad service coverage in some places, in a lot of places. And so the idea that you combine the two gives them increased range, increased range to compete, keeps the prices low, which gives them a way to compete with AT&T and Verizon on better footing. It's actually a pretty good idea. Okay. But it just has not taken place yet. 
because DOJ is imposing weird new restrictions that we've never actually seen them ask for this kind of thing before that I can remember. Does uh, Department of Justice have to publish reasons for doing things? Presumably not. They would. No. No. Okay. Is this anything to do... You said the backing of the FCC. Is this to do with the fact that you've got a a very uh, internet-savvy kind of FCC at the moment over there? You know, the the pro-net neutrality uh, guys and gals. Um, I mean... Well, so Ajit Pai is the chair of the FCC... He is a former Verizon lawyer, but this has the backing of him. He's, he's on board with this. But he's specifically on board with uh, this if they create this new one or just he's in... No, he's, he's been on board. He's been on board before this. The DOJ came with this requirement. He was on board already. Okay, so what do you think? Is it just that it's, it's you know, it's lunchtime, things are quiet, uh, Mueller report's done, let's have some fun, make up some laws? I don't know. Because face it, if you were in charge, wouldn't you be tempted to do something like that? Uh, On a Monday, for example, would you just, let's make up a law with an M in it and see what happens? No. No, 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 I I didn't think so. No, no. No. (sighs) Well, so presumably uh, you said uh, July 29th for deadline. I imagine we'll know by then if it's going to happen. Maybe. But possibly going to. Is the yeah. Of it. Okay. Well, probably. Mm. Um, what what they'll call the new uh, thing? Uh, boost something. I know. Well, no, but if they're spinning off boost, then that'll go away. Boost, uh, yes. Or be someone else's name. Booster, yeah, booster. I'd sign up for a booster thing. I'm imagining, Would you by the way, that uh, you said sprint, sprint, and two mobile have. Uh, spotty reception areas. One imagines that they are not spotty in the same places, so they would get better coverage well, that way. Sprint, as a name, right? Sprint was originally part of AT&T because everything was part of AT&T. When they split off, they had to come up with names. Sprint comes from Southern Pacific Railroad. Oh, right. Okay. Because the telephone wires, the telephone poles, were laid out on the path of the train tracks. Oh, is this like the whole Mason-Dixon line thing? Wow. Well, that. West Coast. Mason-Dixon is east side of things. Right. Mason-Dixon is, is you know, um, the, the mapping of the eastern United States and, and where the north and south separate kind of just thing. Just throwing a bit of American history there, you know, sort of just, yeah, you know, not completely yeah, no, ignorant Southern, Southern Pacific is West Coast, my friend. <laughs> I think there's but, a yeah. book. Oh, wait. Uh, okay, so that's where Sprint came from. Good name. I, I think... I think there's a book. Yes, yes, there's I mean, certainly a, novel, a book, William. I should say. I wasn't a, clear. A book. Yeah. <laughs> you upgrade your smartphone, your TV, and your laptop, but when's the last time you upgraded your home Wi-Fi? Uh, we've talked about this before, and I said I was looking into it now, and I haven't done anything. I mean, before that, uh, t- 10 years? You haven't done anything. No. I've had a cold. Can't you hear it in my voice? The future of Wi-Fi is here. It's time to welcome Wi-Fi 6. The Netgear Nighthawk Wi-Fi 6 router gives you ultra-fast speeds and wider coverage, we were just talking about coverage, throughout your home. It's the biggest revolution in Wi-Fi ever. You get four times the capacity compared to today's Wi-Fi, which means you can connect more devices and stream simultaneously without impacting Wi-Fi speed and reliability. The devices of today and tomorrow demand more. Your old Wi-Fi is timing out, and you need the latest in high-performance Wi-Fi that can keep up with you and your entire family. 
If you stream your shows on services like Netflix or Hulu, the newest line of high-performance routers from Netgear will eliminate buffering and let you stream smoothly, even in 4K. It's like giving your streaming the VIP treatment. If you game online, lag will be a thing of the past. Turn your Wi-Fi up to 6 with a Nighthawk Wi-Fi 6 router. Check it out today at netgear.com slash Wi-Fi 6. That's netgear.com slash Wi-Fi and the number 6. In HomeKit news, Lutron released the Lutron fan speed control. Now, this is something that Andrew O'Hara, who wrote the review, and I saw back in January at the show at CES. And he and I talked a lot about it then, where, where he liked the idea, and I thought they'd made some mistakes. Right. And so what it is, is they make a in-wall device that controls the fan speed. And... In homes that already have ceiling fans installed with the wiring in the wall to bring the fan speed control down to the wall, then this is an easy upgrade. Forgive me, I've you take never out the had old a system like this. What's uh, what's the alternative if you don't? Have well, that? I haven't either, and that's why Andrew loved it and I didn't. So Andrew's Andrew's uh, family builds homes, and when they build homes, they do this custom wiring where you know how ceiling fans have a pull chain on them, yes. right? Yeah. And the pull chain controls the speeds. It selects from, oh, yes. from four yes. speeds off, one, two, and three. And when you're doing these and, and have the walls apart, it's possible to extend those wires that usually go to that switch down into the wall where you'd have a light switch, for example, and could put a controller there on the wall. Sometimes it's a, a dial, a knob that you can turn up to control the fan speed or a selector or something like that. It was the old way of doing it. But Lutron has made this device where you can put it in wall using those same wires that are custom run up to the fan mm. and control the fan speed. Now, that's great if you're like Andrew's family and have those all installed already in the wall. But if you're like the rest of us who don't, then this becomes a really intensive install because now you have to start cutting up in holes and running wires through the wall. Okay, but you would anyway if you wanted to have a wall control thing so presumably if you've got the walls you get one if you haven't you don't right except that there are very few kits that make a a ceiling fan controllable by home kit right you can currently if you wanted to have before this if you wanted to have a ceiling fan controlled by home kit you had relatively few options you could buy a brand new fan from hunter you could, or, or or you had to do something where you had to buy a Bluetooth-based remote control and patch it in via Home Assistant or HomeBridge running on a Raspberry Pi kind of thing, okay. which is a nightmare. Right. And what I had been hoping for was something like what Insteon does. Insteon makes a ceiling fan controller, remote control unit, that goes in the canopy of the fan where the fan is installed. There's a little canopy cover that's right at the ceiling, oh, right. and just you you wire it in right there where the wires to the switch are, and that will control the light kit and the fan speeds and put it on the network for home kit control, okay. which is brilliant. It's an easy install, and the the Lutron product is easy only if you already have all that existing wiring in place, which is terrible because many people do not. So if you have the wiring, get the Lutron. If you don't, get the um, the other one you just said. Uh, well, except that does, the other one doesn't work with HomeKit, so okay. you're screwed there too. I don't think you the, can fault Lutron for doing uh, 
for not doing two I things. I can. I can. Let me, let me, let me, well, no, but I can fault them for making this choice. So what they did was they chose to make this in-wall thing, and they did it for a couple reasons. One, they already have the form factor down for making in-wall stuff because they do it for the lights. So they got to reuse all of their tooling for the plastics there, which was a savings. Makes sense. Yeah. The, the other bit is it pairs with the Lutron Bridge product, which they've already been using successfully for lights and plugs and outlets and things like that for HomeKit. So there's that. They have a thing called a Pico remote, which is a device that pairs with the, the in-wall switch so that you can control them from the little remote control. And the remote controls have a little pedestal they snap onto. And so when I told Lutron that this was kind of silly, when everyone else's remote-controlled fan uses a single remote that has the control of the light kit and the fan speed on it, what was their answer? They took two Pico remotes out, each one paired with the light, one paired with the fan, and put them on a pedestal with two parts on it. So you'd have a really wide pedestal with two Pico remotes on it to control this thing. And I said, well, you've got a fan speed controller there. What if you want to control the light kit on it? Well, now you have to open up an extra hole in your wall and put a two-gang switch in there to have a light switch and the fan switch. So basically, your cost for remote controlling your fan is something like 200 bucks, one for the light kit, one for the fan kit, plus another 100 bucks for two Pico remotes. So you're already getting up to the cost of just buying a Hunter fan in the first place. Sorry, I'm losing some logic there. And this Hunter fan is that home kit. Hunter fans are about 300 bucks for home kit, yeah. But I thought Lutron were the first people to do home kit or something, but they've been beaten. Nope, nope. Hunter did first. Lutron are the first to make it separate from the fan as an add-on unit. Oh, okay. But they've... Right. But, but the price to get there to do all the functionality that you could just do with the other one is close to basically just buying a new fan. It's kind of dumb. Okay, but basically, I think they should have made the Canopy remote and called it a day, but they didn't because they really wanted to use their Pico remotes over again. Well, I, I recognize some of this because I've just written about IKEA's, uh, I believe it's pronounced Tradfree uh, yep. system, and they have what sounds to me the equivalent of Pico remote. Uh, they call it... Um, uh, a steering device sometimes or a steerer uh, and it i don't like it because i've come from the side of home kit where i want to control things through siri or my phone or whatever they are coming to it as furniture sellers ikea sells you know, masses of furniture this is you go to ikea to buy something physical here's a physical device it's a knob that will turn it on and off and i understand it works fine uh, it's very slow compared to home kit stuff but it does what it does um, i don't see a reason why they wouldn't do that even if in my case it means once i'd finished pairing this remote i chucked it over my shoulder and then only had to go scrabbling for it when i added the next thing um you set it up like this and then you know it is what it is you buy it if it works for you, you don't if you don't and this thing about it being the cost of uh, buying a new fan well you've already got a fan you can live without home kit if you want it at least they're giving you options. The options you didn't have before. Right, but options that are, are unsatisfying because they came so close to doing the right thing and then didn't, from my perspective. That seems a very specific a Andrew line. gave it a three out of five stars. And oh, that, I, I think. He said he was much more pro this because he has the wiring things. What did he find against it? What didn't he like? Well,. He 
if you have a fan without lights and a single end box on the wall, then this is easy to do. Otherwise, you need to have an electrician, right? It's a costly addition um, because, you know, that's, that's – he says our main issue with Cassetta by Lutron fan speed control is how expensive it gets when out of your home. Not even your whole home, but just a single room, especially if your fan has a light kit because if you have a light kit, like I said, you have to buy the cost of the fan controller, a light controller, the bridge, and then also the Pico remotes. If you don't have a light control, you end up having to put in a second gang box in your wall just to run the other wire for that light control. So it's not exp- it's not cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it works. There's nothing inherently wrong with this, although it's it's just it, it's it's like they took a lot of shortcuts trying to make this thing rather than starting up from the ground on something that made sense. They reused their existing light controller and put fan screens on it. And they did the same thing with the Pico remotes. If you don't have the pedestal to keep the light on one side and the fan on the other side, it's easy to mix them up because everything's identical because they reused all their tooling. Though you can well understand why. Sometimes I yeah. think the more you go into HomeKit, the more irritating it is. And yet then when you've actually got it and you use it, I try taking it away from me. But it's far from ready for prime time sometimes. Well, I I keep holding out hope that there will be an easier better way to do this you know there's there's a product called a sonoff s-o-n-o-f-f which is made in china available on t-mart and aliexpress and so forth and ebay and what's nice about them is that they're reprogrammable with alternate firmwares you know out of the box they work with alexa and google and that's fine that's well but there are people who've written firmwares that allow them to be used on HomeKit. And okay. so, so, so they can be hacked of, to work with HomeKit. It, well, I, I think hack is, is sort of the wrong word here. It's just uploading an alternate firmware to the device, and then it works. Differently enabled to work with HomeKit. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'm just going to phone I've my mom working... and ask if she's uh, ready with her firmware update installation yet. Well, I have been working with one of the people working on this in open source world oh, really? to see if it's possible to support the ceiling fan controller from them. Because if it is, then all of my fans will become HomeKit compatible and we'll have remote controls and will be lovely. And I'll tell you all about it as soon as it actually works. Great. Okay. Things that I do want to tell you about that do work. I reviewed a Synology D101, uh, sorry, DS1019+. Plus network attached storage device. And I love it. Excellent. I'm actually, I'm not in the market for this in the sense that I can afford to buy uh, lots of network attached storage, but I am in the market for the fact that um, I'm having trouble with storage on my wee little Mac Mini and would like some help. So should I pony up um i don't know how much it is but i'm guessing quite a bit well for this this unit costs quite a lot this unit is something like i'll tell you in a second it is uh 640 without the discs okay so with the discs it's it's quite a bit more whatever the cost of storage is yeah quite a bit but but there this this is a five bay drive unit Right, I can slap five drives in there and have loads of storage, which I have done. Yeah, but there's nothing that says that you have to have a Synology unit that has that many bays. You could go for a single bay unit or a two bay unit, 
and be much less. Yes, but one imagines that these things aren't uh, scalable. So if I buy a two-bay NAS drive enclosure thingy now and later realise I actually need three, I've got to chuck that one away or sell it and buy another one again and start all over. Isn't that right? Incorrect. Oh. Yes. They they all tend to have, and of course we'd have to look at specific models to, be, to verify for sure, but they tend to have eSATA ports on the back of them, and Synology sells a five-bay external enclosure specifically for expansion. Uh, expansion to an existing one. So if I did buy a pair... Yes, I yes. Could, oh, now I truly didn't know that, and that changes things for me. Excellent. Um, right. Now, so this, this five-bay unit, for example, can become a ten-bay unit through the use of that expansion box. And not all of the bays have to be populated when you start out. Right. Now, obviously, if you want to take advantage of, of things like RAID, or which is a, a redundant array of inexpensive disks, um, you, you need to populate more than one drive bay. But you can populate them as singles at a time and create volumes as you go, or combine volumes and do things like that. I don't want to sound cheap here, but you spend 600 odd pounds, whatever it was, for this drive bay, then you have no drives, and you spend quite a lot of money on a drive, but then you spend a lot of money on another drive, and you end up with the same storage capacity of one drive because of the whole RAID backup system. Um, I'm just cheap. Again, you don't have to use RAID. You can do it in, in a just a bunch of disks configuration where it combines all of their storage into a larger volume. Okay, how about this? On my desk right now, I can see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight external drives. Yes, yeah, some portables, some not. Two of them, I don't think the connectors even still exist to use them on my Mac. Uh, is there any way I can plug those into some sort of enclosure? Potentially, yeah. Cool. Oh, I'm learning a lot today. But, okay. uh, but uh, I have 44 terabytes in one of these things. Okay, quite happy right well that's nice for you um but that's just me bragging for the moment but what i want to tell you about is is what this thing does for you because we just talked about it so far as it's an enclosure and it holds drives which is nice but there's a ton of features you can get out of it and you know the, the normal features that people think of are things like music sharing or music storage and sharing that to itunes or the idea of you know, hosting video or storing video, which is nice. Uh, But how do you actually use that stuff? Well, it turns out that they make a DS video application that works on iOS and tvOS. So you can store your videos on it and then display them on your Apple TV or your iPhone or iPod, iPad, which is quite cool. Um, You know, I've gone ahead and put my whole music library on the thing and I'm sharing that through to iTunes. Uh, But it goes further than that. Because one of the cool things that they do is they've created basically a replicated version of Google Docs. So you can write documents through the web browser that are stored on the thing and then share those with other people. You basically create your own private cloud. Okay, I'm liking that quite a bit. It has its own email hosting and email service, kind of like Gmail. has its own uh, chat, although, so you can chat with people. Let's just, and I, I mean, this is very specific to me. I'm sorry to ask a very best yeah. question, but I already use iCloud Drive, so I have access to documents, and I have Plex. Sure. Um, yep. You can run Plex on this, by the way. This can be a Plex server. Okay, and I would want to do this instead of their one 
Why? Well, it is it is their one. It is it is the same thing from Plex, except putting it here as opposed to your computer means it's not dependent on your computer being on. Oh, okay, that is good. Yes, I have issues with my computer being on all the time. Yes, I like. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in terms of iCloud, there's there's not a whole lot to say here other than it's additional to that kind of thing. Now, if you're a Dropbox or a Google Drive user, this thing can synchronize with those so that you have a local copy on your own drives of all your stuff that's up in the cloud there that's not dependent upon Dropbox's sync product on your computer working or Drive's sync product working on your computer. Okay. Which is good. Um, and you're happy with this? It's delighted. Excellent. Delighted, very happy with this thing, um, and it's not my first experience with them. And it took me a while to get accustomed to using one. A couple of years ago, I had a two bay unit from from them, and it it took me a while to understand why I'd want it. And the first thing that I learned that I could do with it was time machine backups over the network to it. Oh, grief! Time machine. I've forgotten about time machine. Yes, that seems very useful. Yeah, and with the discontinuing of the. Uh, the airport express, the airport line, and the um, time capsule units. It, it really makes a lot of sense to be able to do this to the over the network to robust drives. So I'm very happy with that. And you know, they they've, this thing is just so flexible. There's surveillance stations, a piece of software that runs on it. So if I have IP cameras around, which are you know connected cameras over Ethernet, Ooh. basically. It can use the drives as recording medium and go ahead and record all of them, and you can view the cameras from there and also use their iOS app or, or to, to view these things. It's really great. You have this second reminded me that the other day I wired up an old iPhone to be a security camera in my office and have uh, since then managed to put something in front of the lens, completely forgetting that it's there. So uh, if I, Whoops. I could go away and see that, yes... That book is just where I left it. Yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Now I'm I'm really happy with this. I like the idea of this uh, the, the way this works. Now they have an application in there called Download Station, where you type in the name of of whatever file it is you're looking for, and it can download it and then make it available through their music or video or whatever else servers. Now I can't really comment on the the copyright nature of such a thing. But I think it's very interesting that this is really a full-fledged solution from start to finish, whether it's trying to replace an office in terms of Google Drive kind of stuff, trying or, or Google Docs, whether because they have Docs, slides, and spreadsheets equivalents, um, and a chat server, and a mail server, and backup, and restore, and music serving, and video serving, and surveillance, and all. It's, it's just so flexible. Yeah, but apart from that... You know, yeah, I, mean, I I get it. I mean, apart from that, what else you got? What else does it do? Well, I mean, the one that I've got here, the the DS one hundred nine one hundred nine plus, has two Ethernet ports on it, which can be configured for aggregation, so that instead of having one gigabyte shared for up and down, you can pair them with a smart switch that's that's managed and aggregate them so that you get essentially two gigabytes. That's one gig up and one gig down. Okay. So you get faster access to it, which is cool. Let me tell you something else you can do with this thing. This thing can host virtual machine images. Right. Which means you can use it as the virtual machine server and 
either use thin client devices as computers and and use those to to be the virtual machine recipients, or you can just do it through your your computer. So you don't have to install VMware on your Mac kind of thing. All the VMs will be hosted over at the drive, and you can have them anywhere on your network. You might be missing that. Which is kind of of like net booting. I got an error message on my Mac, which told me, your storage is almost full. Ah, manager said, I think uh, if I clicked away to get rid of it, I imagine the next sentence was ask Victor about this Synology thing he keeps mentioning. Uh, that's probably right there in the error message. So, right. Uh, so, so there are a couple of different things, right? Apple would tell you buy more iCloud storage and put your documents and desktop in the cloud and don't keep anything in downloads. And that that would be a way of keeping your Mac clean and keeping things stored. And that's true. That would be one way of handling mm-hmm. it. The other way would be to put folders that are auto-mounted on your Mac that are stored over on a Synology and work out of them that way. For instance, I have video and music folders that mount when I boot the computer, and I have them set up not to refer just to the local network link, but also to what's called dynamic DNS Mm -hmm. that Synology makes as Synology Connect so that I can be out there in the world and view and work with my storage device. I mostly like it's I my, use and mostly like iCloud's uh, documents and desktop thing, except as a FileMaker database I use every day. And recently, for last week, every time I've launched it, it's told me the, the database I need can't be found because iCloud has backed it up. It's the smallest thing, and I use it every day, but I have to go get it, and then FileMaker can open it. Uh, okay, so. here's here's the thing. You really, really, really need to be careful using FileMaker databases on network drives. This is local. And iCloud counts as a network drive. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. It does get also um, backed up every night through a keyboard maestro script, but that's another story. I I would tell you to keep it local, open it local, don't have it in something that's shared with iCloud, and then have the keyboard maestro script back it up overnight to an iCloud location. Because the way that FileMaker works is that even when you're not doing anything with it, they make changes to the FileMaker database in the background. Sure. And that's why why FileMaker Server exists. Is FileMaker Server exists exclusively, basically, to fix this problem so that you can use network drives, so that you can have multiple people accessing at one point or time together. It's It's really, if you have it not on your local drive, you are risking your database. Um, I now want to say goodbye so I can go off and do this straight away. Goodbye. Okay. (laughs) Thanks. Seriously, that'll help. This has been the Apple Insider Podcast, and I want to make sure that your data is secure, that your data maintains its integrity and is not lost. So, William, I'm going to let you go to do that because I don't want your data being in risk. I genuinely am going to do it this moment, and I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. William is available at william at appleinsider.com and on Twitter at W Gallagher. William, where am I available? Everywhere that good somethings are sold. I can't remember what the phrase is, and it's probably only a <laughs> UK phrase. Wherever good books Film at 11. Uh, served. <laughs> no, you, uh, you're over there, aren't you? On the, yes, on that, on that I thing. am. Yeah. Yeah. Good. I'm V Marks. I'm on Twitter and Victor at AppleInsider.com. We have really enjoyed this one. I'm so glad you guys were here for it. Thank you for listening. Leave us positive reviews on iTunes. Leave us positive comments in our email. Leave us questions in our email. We love to answer listener questions. 
<laughs> we love trying. We'll be back. We love struggling with listener questions. <laughs> yes. We'll be back next week. When's the last time you upgraded your home's Wi-Fi? Turn your Wi-Fi up a notch with Netgear's new line of Nighthawk Wi-Fi 6 routers. Whether you're gaming online or watching Netflix in 4K, it's like giving your streaming the VIP treatment. You'll enjoy buffer-free streaming and zero lag no matter how many devices are connected to your network. Upgrade your router to netgear.com slash Wi-Fi 6. Make your Wi-Fi feel young again.